bow our hearts. Father, we truly do thank you for your word. And Lord, we just pray now that you speak to us. Father, I pray you enable me to present just the wonderful examples, the the truth or the hope, the comfort that we find, Lord, in these passages. And Father, give us ears to hear. Lord, may we not just learn information, but Father, may we take on board things that change our lives, the way we live. Lord, your word says that it is living and powerful. And it can change us. So Father, this morning, we just want to humbly yield ourselves to your word. To send us to submission now to you. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, 19th session so far, going through the the Bible and up to as far as the book of Esther. Again, just from a, a chronological point of view, Esther fits in this period of time at the end of the the exile period as the Jews have returned to, uh, or at least 50,000 or so of the Jews have returned to the land of Israel. And at that portion of time we see Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, the two books there that we've studied last week, and then we find Esther, which kind of sits uh, in the middle of that in terms of a time point of view, we'll mention that in a moment. Um, it's kind of post-exile history. After this, we get into what's referred to as the poetical books, so Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, um, each of those with their valuable lessons to teach us. But the book of Esther itself, an incredible book. Again, because, as I just said, during this time at the end of the exiles, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, uh, typically the prophets that are speaking to the nation of Israel during this time. But Esther... It takes place not in Israel. The book of Esther takes place far, far away over in Susa or Shushan, as we'll look in a moment on the map. If we look at um, the book itself, and by the way, this uh, background, this relief actually is from the British Museum. Um, it's um, part of what was uh, in the, the, the palace, uh, these Persian palaces, and we're talking a bit about the history as we go through. The, the Jewish tradition ascribes the book of uh, Esther to Ezra as the, the author of the scribe. Ezra seems to be the one that most commentators feel was responsible for writing. Certainly, the majority of what we find in Chronicles, uh, Ezra, and also contributing, certainly, uh, probably acting as a menuensis for the book of uh, Nehemiah also, and obviously his own work, Ezra. <clears throat> He's also credited with actually very much bringing together the canon of the Old Testament uh, as we have it. Um, the book of Esther, though, fits from a chronological point of view, in between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. So it's before we've got to the book of Nehemiah from a time point of view. And the theme really is God's deliverance of his chosen people, Israel, from Satan's plans. And it's a recurring theme that we've seen throughout history, that God continually does this. But this is just an incredible, dramatic demonstration of that. Interestingly, the book doesn't actually mention the name of God at all. Now, this led Martin Luther and others to suggest that it should actually be therefore removed from the Bible. Well, thankfully, it's not been removed from the Bible. And of course, God does work very clearly behind the scenes. I think one of the powerful lessons that we see from this book is that God is always at work. And even though we don't necessarily see his name on the surface, God is there behind everything that's going on. 
God, of course, does authenticate his word. And the Jews are um, very aware and make a comment of the fact that we've got hidden codes, in a sense, within this book. There's five acrostics. I'll explain that in just a moment. And there's three, at least three, equidistant letter sequences concealed within the text of this book. Now, just to explain very quickly what an acrostic is... If we take John 19.19, this is where Pilate writes this plaque that's put across the, the, the top of the cross when Jesus is being crucified. And he writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now that's what's written. If you remember, the, the Jews get really upset about this and they say, you know, just you know, change it. Say, he said that I am. They wanted to change the wording. Why? Well, we find this was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. But specifically, if we look in the Hebrew, there were just four words. There was Yeshua, Jesus. There was Hanatzeroi, of Nazareth. Then Vemelka, the king. And then Hayudim, of the Jews. So those four words. But if you look at the first letter of each of those words, it spells Yahweh. And this is why the Jews were so incensed. Because effectively, blazoned across the top of the cross, it said... Yahweh, or God. This is, of course, the God that the Jews worship. This is what they refer to as the Tetragrammaton, the the unpronounceable name of God. Um, And they, again, represent it by these four letters. So that's what we mean when we're talking about an acrostic. Um, We find also Psalm 119 is intentionally designed this way. Um, Psalm 119 uses all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, as we go through the various blocks of eight verses as we have it broken down in the English. But each of the, the, the verses start with the letter of that particular block. So typically it starts with an aleph, and every verse in that first section starts with an aleph, and so on. So we get these kind of ideas uh, through Scripture. God clearly has worked this way. Now, in the book of Esther, we find that God has authenticated, in a sense, uh, this book by including these acrostics in there. And we have God's name, Yahweh, again. So taking the, the first letter of these particular verses, in chapter 1, verse 20, we have the first one. Now, what we have is the, um, is the initial letter, so the letters at the start of these words... Because the event was an initial event. It was a, we'll see as we go through these, it was a decree that was being published and so on. Um, but it was written backwards. So the last letter, in a sense, was first. And why? Because God was turning back the counsels of men. Now, you may think that's contrived, but as you go on, you then see the next one occurs in chapter 5, verse 4. Where, again, um, it's the initial letters, so God's initiating the action here. But it's written forward because God's causing something to happen. And Esther's about to act. In chapter 5.13, it's the final letters of the words uh, that form this acrostic. And they're written backwards, as it were. Uh, and again, this is uh, God is overruling Haman, who we're going to see is this, uh, the villain of the, the account. Um, he's overruling uh, Haman's gladness and he's turning back Haman's counsel. It's very uh, cleverly woven into this. And then finally in Esther chapter 7 verse 7, we have the last one. Again, the name of God encoded in the text. Um, and uh, this time it's the final um, letters of the words. And it's written forward in a sense in the correct direction. Um, God again is bringing about that which he decreed. So we see this incredible design now. All this just goes to authenticate that God has put his fingerprints throughout scripture. There's so many examples we could look at. It's just interesting, you look here, um, the first time we have it, again, it's the initial letters, the first letters, 
uh, and it's written backwards to the last letter first. Uh, and we, you can see there how this is broken down. So when it's the initial letters, the facts are initial, it's initiating something. When it's written, uh, when the, it's final, the facts are final. When it's written backwards, it's always applying to the Gentiles. When it's written forwards, it's always applying to Israel. It's incredible design. If you try to do that, it'd be almost impossible to interweave this in the text. And bear in mind that the surface text makes, makes perfect sense as well. It's not as if you're um, you know, getting the text on the top just to fit this. The text on the top makes absolute sense. <clears throat> There's also, uh, as been noted by some, an introversion in, in those four occurrences where the name of God appears. Uh, we have the word spoken concerning a queen, then the word spoken by a queen, and then it's like the, uh, the symmetry, words spoken by Haman, and then finally the words concerning Haman. So uh, just indications of design all the way through the text here. Another one of these acrostics appears in chapter 7, verse 5, where we have there the name I am recorded. And it's interesting because it's at the point, and we'll see this as we get there in a short while, where the king is asking Esther, who would dare to presume to do such a thing? And we'll look at the context in a moment. And underneath that we have the I am, the voice of the burning bush. And it's against God that this atrocity is being committed. And God's uh, fingerprints are right there at this point. What's significant is where these things occur within the text uh, they're so applicable to the surface text as well well there's also an equidistant letter sequence that's when we take the first letter of a word you count forward a given number of letters you come to another letter you take that one you count forward exactly the same interval again and take the next one and it makes up a word well in chapter 1 verse 3 we have messiah but interestingly it's at an interval of eight now if anybody's studied bible numerics you know that um just as um Names and so on have meanings and things. Well, numbers also have meanings. Colors have meanings in scripture and materials have different meanings. Well, eight symbolizes typically new beginnings, but eight always has reference to the Messiah as well. And it's interesting that this interval is an interval of eight where we have Messiah in the text. We also have in Esther chapter four, verse seven, again, at an interval of eight, Yeshua or Savior, Jesus is written in there. And then uh, the final one is in Esther chapter 4, verse 2. This equidistant letter sequence there is an interval of seven, and it's the Almighty. El Shaddai is actually what's in the text. Um, And again, seven being that number of complete. So God, of course, is is complete. So um, just interesting things. There's another one as well that another rabbi had noted. Um, and it's just it's interesting, and again, it's just where it occurs within the text. And this is in chapter 3. Um, and the text there, again, is about uh, Haman and so on. And it's simply this, this text, this, this wording, this phrase is underneath the text. Uh, this equidistant letter sequence of six is this, Haman and Satan stink. Just, you know, it's there. Whether you like it or not, it's there in the text. And it's an interval of six. And it's interesting because six always represents the number of man and so on. Um, So these ideas, these fingerprints of God hidden underneath the text. Although we don't find God's name written in the book itself, there's clearly examples that God is throughout this book and has engineered this uh, incredible work that we have. Okay. If we're to look then at the, the history of the time, we have, of course, Cyrus... 
This is the, the king that comes and takes over Babylon from Balthasar, the night that Balthasar is having his feast, the writing on the wall and so on. We'll look at that when we get to Daniel. And Cyrus, um, from Jewish um, history, we, we have recorded, Josephus makes mention of this, that Daniel... An elderly Daniel meets Cyrus at the gate of Babylon. So 12 days after the the empire of Babylon has fallen to the Persians, Cyrus himself arrives. And Daniel greets him and reads to him out of the book of Isaiah. And when we get to Isaiah, we'll study, we'll look at that portion. But Isaiah 44, 45 is the, the portion of scripture where Cyrus is mentioned by name in a document that was written 150 years before he was born. And speaks of what he was going to do and how he was going to accomplish this victory. Well, as a result of this, Cyrus signs a decree allowing the Jews to return home. That was in 537. And then we go through the successive kings. Uh, Cambyses II, uh, also in the scripture referred to as Artaxes. Um, that's the king that stops the work on the temple. That's what we saw in the book of Ezra chapter 4 last time. We then have another king, Smerdes, that reigns for a short period of time. And then uh, Darius, Darius the Great, uh, referenced again in uh, um, uh, Ezra chapter 4, also in the book of Haggai referred to. And this is the king that finally signs the decree that allows the, um, the desolations of Jerusalem to come to an end. And the rebuilding of the temple then begins at this point. And that was actually in 518, the second year of his reign, we're told, in the book of uh, Haggai. And then we get on to the king that we're interested in this morning, which is this king Xerxes. Now Xerxes um, is the historical name, that's the name of the king. We're going to find in the text he's referred to as Ahasuerus, that was his title, very much like Pharaoh. Pharaoh wasn't a name, it was a title. Ahasuerus is a title, but his real name is Xerxes, and that's the name historically you'll find. And this is the king that uh, we find that uh, is the, the king during this book itself. Uh, we're going to find that his son then, uh, this king, Artaxes Longimonus, a very significant king um, from an Israeli point of view, from a historical point of view, because in the 20th year of his reign, he will sign another decree. And again, we'll look at that when we get to the book of Daniel. So these are the kings of the Persian Empire, very much intertwined with the things that were going on uh, that we read of in Scripture during this period as well. If we look at a map, we've got Jerusalem right over here. Um, obviously the land of Israel uh, we've got this desert uh, area here and then typically the trade route would be taken up a little bit north and then come down Babylon we're, we're familiar with uh, on the Euphrates River uh, and then a little bit further across we have this place Shushan here uh, this was the winter capital if you like for the kings the central heating or their air conditioning systems worked that you moved to a hot place when it was cold and you moved to a cold place when it was hot uh, they didn't have buttons that they can push and things um, so Shushan becomes the winter palace for the Persian kings. And we'll look at some uh, historical reference and detail of that in a moment. <clears throat> now, the background for the book of Esther sees one of the most significant battles in history. Now, that's not my opinion. Um, a lot of historians, not just from a Christian perspective, just purely anybody who's looked at history, notes that this period of history has a massive impact on the rest of history. The Battle of Salamis, 480 BC, is the battle that's in question here. Very significant. The Greek city-states of Athens and Eretia had supported 
an unsuccessful Ionian revolt against the Persian Empire of Darius. So this is Darius the Great. This is our king from the book of Ezra's dad. So when he was in power, um, there had been this revolt and everything else, and it had been quite a widespread revolt. Darius had managed to put it down, and that had then threatened the integrity of his empire. Darius, in turn, had vowed to punish all those who were involved. Of course, Darius sees this as an opportunity to expand his empire into the divided world of Greece. Now, you may be familiar in Daniel, we have this vision of the gold and head with the chest and arms of silver, and then we get down to the belly and thigh of bronze of representing the nation of Greece. Well, at this point, Greece is just starting to rise as a nation, but it's still divided. There's lots of city-states. It's not a unified uh, power at this point. That doesn't really happen until Alexander the Great comes on a little bit later on the scene. Well, after a successful mission in 492, now remember, before the cross, the numbers are going to be coming down. So 492 BC, the following year, Darius sends emissaries to all the Greek city-states, asking them for a gift of earth and water. This was basically uh, a sign of their submission and their, their obedience to him. Well, that's uh, not quite what happens, because although a lot do, um, we find that a number of the, the city-states refuse to do so. And uh, as I say, many of them capitulate, but Athens particularly, um, when these ambassadors arrive, they're put on trial and then executed. Different ambassadors go to Sparta and they're just simply thrown down a well and not even uh, tried as such. So effectively, Sparta and Athens are now at war with Persia. Well, in 490 BC, Darius then attacks uh, two of these uh, places, Naxos and Eritrea, and others as well. And finally, he moves against Athens, landing at the Bay of Marathon. Now, this is another significant historical battle. Because although they were heavily outnumbered, the Athenians won a remarkable victory, which resulted in the withdrawal of the Persian army to Asia. Of course, the kings of Persia were not impressed by this, uh, didn't like to be defeated. They'd been such a dominant power. And when we saw that map a moment ago, you realize that the territory that Persia had conquered and suddenly to be put down by these small Greek city-states. Well, Darius is enraged. He starts to raise a huge army, which, of course, he intends to completely subjugate Greece. But in 486... Egypt also revolts against him, which causes a a temporary halt for his plans to Greece. He then goes out and uh, deals with Egypt. Um, But while he's doing that, he dies. And the throne of Persia passes to his son. So into now our king, the one that we're interested in for the book of Esther, Xerxes I. Well, Xerxes crushed this Egyptian revolt and very quickly started the preparations, or restarted the preparations for the invasion of Greece. And since it was going to be a full-scale invasion, it required long-term planning and stockpiling and conscription. Now, with that history, we jump into chapter 1 of the book of Esther. And we read, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigns from India even unto Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign. Okay, now note the third year. So this is three years in, and he's already been working on these plans for three years to bring everybody together, to conscript people in. And we're told that he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces, 
being before him. Why? Because he was about to go up against Greece. He knew that they'd suffered this defeat at the Bay of Marathon. And as a result of this, he couldn't afford another defeat. So he's amassing this massive army. And he's trying to buy everybody in. He's trying to unite everybody in his realm. All the people that previously he subjugated now, he's trying to bring them on side. He brings them to the palace. And he sets up this very, very lavish uh, feast, this party that goes on. We read, And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even 180 days. Now that's some party. And this is, of course, to impress those that he's bringing. He wants to get them all on side so that when he then starts this expedition against Greece, he's going with a really strong united force. And we read, And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace. So this seems to be very much kind of a, a thank you for all the people that have been involved, that have helped out and everything else with the preparations and things for this long feast to try and win, which presumably he'd now done the hearts of all uh, the, the key people in the realm. And we read, Both unto the great and the small, and this is to be another feast of seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So we've had 180 days of feasting, and now there's another seven days, very much seemingly to kind of a thank you, because uh, we read it again, a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan. So those who were there at this time. Um, and uh, yes, so uh, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple uh, to silver uh, rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. Just this lavish uh, display and decoration all round. And we read, And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse from one another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. So this is just an absolute riot. Everybody feasting, having as much as they want. Uh, obviously all sorts of excess going on here. Now, excess, just to, just, sorry, just to give you an idea of uh, the character of this king that we're talking about. Well, as part of the preparations and so on, Xerxes had decided to build a bridge across the Hellespont. This is a, a, a bit of land, there's a short piece of water between two. This is near Greece now, and to allow his army to cross into Europe. But one night a storm had destroyed the bridge, so he ordered those who had built it executed, and he ordered the sea to be given 300 lashes. This man is a very reactionary individual. And that's just the kind of the character. There's many other examples historically we could give that show he's a very impetuous individual and makes very quick snap decisions and so on. And then we read, The Vashti, the queen, made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, now he's been drinking for 180 days, and now he's got another seven days. So by this point, we're told that the king was very merry with wine. He commanded... We're told then the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of King Ahasuerus the king to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the, the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty. And we're told, for she was fair to look upon. He wants to parade his wife in front of all the drunken men that are there. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth. You see, he's been trying to build this coalition. 
And he can't even get his wife to obey him. This looks very bad on him. He's absolutely incensed by this. Uh, and his anger burned in him, we're told. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times. For so was the king's manner towards all that knew law and judgment. And he goes on, What shall we do unto Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she has not performed the commandment of King Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. Well, this individual, Memucan, steps forward and answered the king and the princes, Vashti the queen has not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in the provinces of the king, of king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. And when it shall be reported, the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. So he's saying, look, we've got to do something, otherwise this is just going to cause a, this will be the start of women's lib. And it's just going to be, well, what are we going to do at this point? You know, that we won't be able to watch Match of the Day or any of those things. So this is starting a real problem. And as a result of this, we read, if it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him. And let it be written among the laws of the, Me- of the Persians and the Medes. And again, reference to the book of Daniel. We're told in the book of Daniel, and it's reiterated here, that these laws that are stated and signed cannot be altered. Which is exactly what we're told, that it cannot be altered. That Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Now, of course, the king is drunk at this point. He's very uh, incensed at this situation. Something's got to be done. And so this is exactly what happens. The Vashti then is banished, as we've just seen there. And so this then begins the search for a new queen. But it's not immediate. There's a period of time that lapses during this time as well. So by early 480 BC, so a little bit later on now, preparations were complete and Xerxes' army marched towards Europe at this point. The Athenian-led Greeks had also been preparing for war. They knew this was coming under the guidance of uh, an Athenian politician, uh, Themistocles, uh, by name. Uh, well, this individual, Themistocles, spread the rumour and managed to get this filtering back to the Persians that the Greeks were disbanding. Of course, they were individual city-states. Been, they were at war with themselves, incidentally. So it was some feat to get them together in the first place. And so he, he disseminates this rumour that uh, the Greeks are all disbanding and everything else. And the Persians are lured into a narrow stretch of water between Salamis, this island, and the mainland. If we uh, look at that in a minute on the map, I'll show you. Well, history records there was about 378 Greek ships versus, by um, some records, 1,207 Persian warships. Uh, even, even the conservative scholars suggest there was at least six to 800 Persian ships. So whatever the situation, Greece was outnumbered at least two to one at this point. And yet, wins a decisive victory. If we look at this on the map, uh, we see... This is the area um, up round, sorry, uh, where are we now? Um, yes, yeah, so in, in this area up, up round here, uh, this is where the, the battle kind of takes place and they end up getting trapped in this very narrow piece of land. If I zoom in on that kind of area, so they come up here. Um, we've got um, this uh, Salamis here and the, the Greek, sorry, the Persian fleet comes in and they get trapped. Uh, and there's, because they've got so many ships, they can't manoeuvre, they can't do anything which gives Greece the advantage. And as a result of that, the, the Persian fleet is uh, decimated and it causes a major problem. There's a few little repercussions afterwards, but as a result of this, the uh, Persian army is forced to return home. Well, 
A significant number of historians stated that Salamis is one of the most significant battles in human history because it paves the way now for the rise of Greece. Now, why is that of any interest to us? Well, because it leads to a universal language at that time. The Greek language then takes over as Greek culture reigns. And by the time we get to Alexander the Great, we know how quick uh, he went through and just conquered the known world. And of course, it makes the world ready for the spread of the gospel. See, God had engineered all of these things, working behind the scenes. And even this battle itself, God was clearly working in these things. Because as a result of this, Greece now rises in power and authority and everything else. And by the time we get to the gospel period, the Greek language is spoken everywhere. Up until this point, all sorts of different languages were spoken. It had made the spread of the gospel very difficult. But suddenly... It makes it possible for the gospel to spread by the time we get a few hundred years down the road to the time of Jesus. As I said, Xerxes ultimately forced to return to Persia, totally humiliated and despondent. And of course, need to mention the fact as well that in all of this, the king has not only lost the battle, but he's lost his bride. He doesn't have the comfort of his wife anymore because she's been banished. And probably lamenting the fact that um, he banished her in this kind of fit of drunkenness and so on. Well, his servants suggest a plan, and they would search the realm for the most beautiful women that they could find. Whoever would please them most would be his queen. Well, obviously, it's a plan that he seems to be very happy to go along with. And so now we read in chapter 2, verse 5. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kirsha Benjamin who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, so she's his cousin. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful. Now, Vashti, we're told, in scripture, was fair, she was good to look on, but of Esther, we're told, she was fair and beautiful whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Just to highlight here that we have this lineage traced back to the line of Benjamin, and we're not given the whole lineage here, um, and son in the, the context could refer to a grandson or descendant of. Um, there's no um, word in Hebrew for grandson, for example. So, but we're told that Kish, well we recognize Kish, Kish of course was the father of Saul. And then we're told also that another descendant of this line was this individual called Shimei. Now Shimei, you may remember, was an individual that after David had um, had a problem with Absalom and he's, uh, he's left the palace, Shimei meets him in the way and starts cursing David and everything else. David could have killed him, but David doesn't. David spares him. Shimei, effectively, by David's grace, is allowed to live. And this is very interesting because David declines to take vengeance on Shimei. Mordecai, that we see, was then a descendant of Shimei, of the house of Kish, the father of Saul, again, a product of David's grace. Now, he'll ultimately confront Haman, this individual we're going to meet in a moment, and Haman, we find, was a descendant of Agag, which was a result of Saul's failure to follow God's instructions. Hey, uh, the, he was an Amalekite. Saul had been told to wipe out the Amalekites. He didn't wipe out the Amalekites. As a result of this, this individual, Haman, comes to prominence in the royal court, as we'll see in a moment. And he's there because of a failure to obey God. Very interesting the way these things all work together. 
And this individual, this, this uh, Mordecai, refuses to acknowledge and honor and do obeisance to Haman. Just to mention as well then, Shushan the palace, um, this is an inscription, this is actually, this piece of uh, tablet is in the Louvre uh, in uh, Paris, on the best days of my honeymoon, we went to Paris for a honeymoon, and um, we spent a whole day going around the Louvre, Joy wasn't so keen for, them for some reason, but um, it was a fantastic time. There was a note at the end of the day, it said, do not attempt all of this in one day, but wow. It was good fun. Um, this inscription simply says, written by Darius, again, the father of uh, uh, Ahasuerus, who we're looking at in the text, this palace, we, palace which I built at Susa, and this, the remains of the palace are still there to this day, and can be visited, and so on. Uh, an artist's impression of what it may have looked like, a very grand, prestigious, I mean, this was one of the capitals, in a sense, of the realm. Um, this is from the British Museum. Um, that's uh, a typical relief that they've got there, uh, a guardsman. Um, as you can see there, and it says the east gate of the palace of Susa in Iran, around um, about 521 to 500 BC. So this is just prior, uh, the dating is just prior to the time we're looking at. So almost certainly Esther would have seen this very thing that we're looking at there. And a lot of these things are up in the British Museum. You can go and see. This actually, as I say, in the British Museum, it's on the uh, permanent loan from the Louvre as well. There's also lots of silver that they found uh, from the Persian uh, realm. This, these plates and cups and bowls come from Shushan itself. And it's just interesting. Although gold cups are used, and we have already mentioned that in the text, the predominant metal of the realm seems to be silver. Whereas in Babylon, gold was everywhere, and they used gold cups and the whole thing. When we get to Persia, it's silver, and it's interesting because Daniel's image speaks of the head of gold being Babylon and the chest and arms being of silver. And not only is it just a pictorial representation, but it also is interesting that the the, um, Persians seem to use silver as their primary metal of choice of, of valuable things. So, anyway. Okay, so as a result of this, Esther, this cousin of this Mordecai, is then chosen as the queen. Mordecai, of course, counsels her not to reveal her nationality. Now, it's interesting just to make mention that she has a year of preparation before she's brought before the king. So there's a quite a lot of time elapsing through this as well. So, guys, you may be able to sympathise if you've you know, a, a woman taking a year to get ready. Um, I mentioned that last night and I got a clout for it. But uh, anyway, it's, there's a biblical presence for it. Uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 21, we pick up. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, uh, these individuals, Bigtham and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth. Something had happened, they were upset with the king, and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai. So Mordecai typically makes his home seemingly at the gates uh, of the, 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 um, the palace. And we're told that Mordecai told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. Now, she's not revealed the relationship between him, her and Mordecai, and she's not yet said that she's a Jew. But we read, And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out, and therefore they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Just a little few verses there, but it's hugely significant in the context of what we're going to see. So, chapter 3 then, we get a situation that after these two individuals have been moved, these were prominent members of the, the cabinet, if you like, well, we then find that Ahasuerus promotes Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Haggites, okay, so the Malachite individual here, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. 
And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did he reverence. So this just obviously incenses this individual again, this Agite, the descendants of King Agag, uh, and so on. <clears throat> We're told, verse 5, that Haman, as a result of this, is full of wrath. You know, everybody else is banged down. Haman was a hugely wealthy individual, very, very wealthy politician, if you like, and he's given this, this kind of primary position within the realm. So, of course, he seeks to kill Mordecai. But not just that, he seeks to kill all the Jews in the entire realm. Now, again, the Amalekites were those that first attacked Israel when they'd left Egypt. We read about that in Exodus chapter 17. And through Israel's history, they were a constant problem. And that's why Saul had been told to wipe them out. Well, Haman, as a result of this, seeks an audience with the king. And he speaks ill of the Jews. He doesn't specifically talk about the Jews. He's just, there is a people in your realm, O king. And goes on and explains the problem. They're very rebellious. They're going to cause problems. They won't obey your laws and their rules and so on. So he advises the king to agree to have all the Jews killed. And again, you know, these are just, you know, these people, you don't need to know who they are. They're just a pest. Let's just get rid of them. And Haman even offers to bankroll the project. Effectively, the money that Haman is willing to put up is two-thirds of the annual income to the Persian Empire. That's a huge amount of money. He was incredibly wealthy. And he says to the king, look, don't trouble yourselves. I'll even pay for all the work, everything that's got to take place in this. So the king effectively is coerced and gives Haman his ring as a sign of his authority. And then Haman starts getting his letters sent out throughout the realm setting the day. The way they set the day is to effectively roll the dice, the lots, or the pur, as they call it, P-U-R. Um, and so they set the day. And the day turns out to be 12 months later. Now, Haman may have been frustrated, but part of their superstition and everything else, if they rolled the dice, they would go with what that said. So this date is set for the 12th month of the year. So this would be somewhere around about our March time. That there's almost a year later then that this day is set when all the Jews in the realm will be wiped out. So now the planning and preparation starts to go for that. Well, chapter 4. We read that when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So he's staying outside the king's gate, just, just absolute distraught because of the situation. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told her. And then the queen was exceedingly grieved. And she sent Raymond to clothe Mordecai. And to take away his sackcloth from him. But he received it not. He wouldn't be comforted by this. Then called Esther for Hatach, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he'd appointed to attend upon her. And gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hatach went forth to Mordecai unto the street of the city which was before the king's gate and Mordecai told him all of all that had happened unto him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him a copy of the writing and the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it to Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king 
to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. And Hattach came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And Esther spoke unto Hattach and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. So this to and froing at this point, they, they didn't have email in those days, obviously, so this individual was doing all the running backwards and forwards. And the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come in unto the king, into the king's inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. So Esther's saying, look, you're asking me to go in before the king, but it's part of the law. If I go into the king without an invitation, I could, be, I could be put to death. Unless the king holds out to me his golden scepter, I've got no right to go in before him. Well, Mordecai gets the message. And then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall the enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether you'll come into the kingdom for such a time as this. One of the most powerful blocks of scripture we find. So many things that speak to us here. Notice what Mordecai is saying. You know, look, you can choose to serve God in this situation. And it may be that God has raised you up for just such a time as this. It may be that you're in the position that you are in your work life or in your social setting with the people that you know. It may be that God has placed you there for just such a time as this to speak on his behalf. But you know what? If you choose to say nothing, you're not going to thwart God's plans God is still going to do what he's going to do. God had promised to look after the nation of Israel. All that's going to happen is we get to miss out on the things that God is doing. That great example that we find in the book of Judges with Gideon. Gideon has these 30 odd thousand men and it's whittled down to just these 300. And the 300 go out and they go out with their pitchers, with their lights in and their horns and they blow their horns, they smash the pitchers and they've got these light shining through these broken vessels a wonderful picture and then we find that after this victory the Midianites flee and so on the whole nation benefits everybody receives of the spoil but only 300 for eternity will be able to say God used me and that's what Mordecai is saying to Esther here you've got a chance to be used in something that God is doing are you prepared to step forward and to do that Or are we too frightened of what it might cost us? Are we too frightened of people's opinions? Are we more concerned about our name than God's name? And so the challenge is put before Esther. You know, that God has placed you there for such a time as this. Well, as a result of this, Esther agrees to petition the king. But she sends back to Mordecai and says, I'll go and do this. No doubt feeling convicted of of the Lord. But calls all the Jews to fast for three days and three nights. Interesting, again, three days, three nights and so on. And uh, we could dig into these things and see far, far more. But moving on for now. As a result of this, we get to chapter 5. Esther goes to see the king. Fortunately, he holds out his royal scepter. He's pleased to see Esther, invites her in. 
we could just talk briefly about the way it is with a, a heathen king and the fear that people had in going and presenting themselves before the throne and with the humility that people would go before a secular heathen king. What kind of humility should we have when we go before the throne of the king of kings and we're given right of access 24-7, anytime, day or night, we can go before the throne of the king of kings and he's already agreed, as it were, to hold out that royal scepter because if you like, it's uh, dipped in the blood of Jesus. And that's why we have this right of access. Well, Esther invites the king and Haman to a banquet. Now, we've already seen the king's propensity for these type of things. He's quite happy to accept. Of course, the, the offer, the, the, the king says, well, look, if you're going to do this, you're going to have up to half the kingdom. Now, that's not literally saying you have half the kingdom, but meta, it's uh, rhetorically just saying, you know, whatever you want, I'm going to grant your request. Well, the first banquet they do, and then Esther doesn't deal with the issue. She doesn't say, King, I need to talk to you about a problem we've got. Because at the end of it, the king says, Okay, Esther, we've had lovely food, it's been really nice, what is it you want? And she says, No. Tomorrow, can we do this again? Can I invite you to another banquet? It's interesting that Esther could have dealt with it there and then. But this is just one of those moments very much like the verse that Jared put up for us earlier, the verse of the week. Are we prepared to wait on the Lord? You know, sometimes we, we rush in and we want to try and do everything. And sometimes even witnessing to somebody, sometimes we feel a check in our spirits. And the Lord says, no. And it's kind of counterintuitive because we think, but you know, now is the moment. I've got, surely got to do something straight away. Well, Esther was in just one of those situations. And don't trivialize this. This is a life and death situation. And she says, no, I'm not going to do this now. I'm going to wait. And she waits on God. She doesn't, I'm sure at this point, have in her own mind any idea why she's waiting. I don't think this was uh, a rehearsed thing. She's asked the Jews to pray for three days and three nights. She's now ready. She goes in. At the moment the king says, what do you want? She goes, no, could you come back tomorrow? Can we do this again? And for some reason, the Holy Spirit checks her and she's not allowed to present this request. And we find out as we go on exactly why that is. Well, have came and, of course, he's full of pride and drink. And he marches home, he's absolutely elated. You know I mean, he's been invited to go and have this meal with the king of the realm and with the queen. Nobody else got invited, just him. But as he's walking home, he happens to notice Mordecai. Everybody else is bowing as he walks past. And Mordecai just stands there resolute. He's not going to bow. He's not going to bow down before a man. He's only going to worship his God. Well, of course, that makes Haman really cross. He goes home, speaks to his family. All the wonderful things. He says, and all that avails me nothing. All the time I see Mordecai the Jew doing this. And so his wife and the other people say, well, why don't you build a gallows and have him hung? Well, now we find out why. Esther didn't go ahead and deal with that issue at that point. Because that night, the king can't sleep. And we're told he commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigtha and uh, Teresh, uh, the two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, uh, who sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. So he's reading now historically these things. It's incredible. You know, he could have 
done anything. He could have said, run me a bath. He could have said, go and fetch one of my wives. He could have said, give me something to drink. But he says, history. Let me read some history. Now, some of you may resonate with that when you're at school. You may have found history put you to sleep as well. But the king at this point decides he's going to read through some of these things. And he reads of this situation. And the king said, what honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? And then the, the king's servants, they kind of look to each other. Oh, nothing. No, nothing was done for him. And the king said, who's in the court now? Well, we're told the Haman was coming to the outer court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he prepared for him. So Mordecai seemingly has gone home that night, got up really early, maybe he and his friends, whatever, they built this gallows, they've got it already. He's like, right, I'm going to the court, I'm going to see the king, this is going to be a great day, I'm going to banquet later with the king and the, with the, king and the queen, and I'm going to get permission from the king to kill Mordecai, all my problems are over. So he's got to the court really early. None of the other chamberlains are there. None of the other um, politicians are around. He's the only one there. And so the king's servant said unto him, to the king, Behold, Haman stands in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman's there and thinks, This is just getting better and better. The king straight away is asking me to come and see him. And Haman came in. And the king said unto him, Haman, what should be done unto the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than myself? You know, Haman's thinking to himself, you know, I'm, I'm in this great position now. I've been given this ring. I've been given all this authority. Everybody loves me. And he's there. And then the king said, Haman, I want to honor somebody. Somebody very special, you know. And Haman's thinking, oh yes, king, I know, yes. And he says, what, what should we do? Well, just before we move on. We see here a picture of what we find in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 38 and Genesis 3. Those scriptures deal with the fall of man and Satan's rebellion against God. You see, God created the heavens, the earth. God created everything in six days. And on the sixth day, Satan's there thinking, this is nice. I like all of this. God, you've done a great job. I like my new kingdom. And then God creates man in his image. And in Isaiah 14, Satan says, amongst his I will statements, is I will be like the Most High. I want to be like God. You see, angels were not made in the image and likeness of God, but mankind was. And Satan decides he wants that position. He deceived man. He usurped man's authority and he takes control of the earth. And we read... 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Luke chapter 4 and elsewhere. That for now Satan is the god of this world. He has achieved partly that purpose that he set out to achieve. He's got everything. You see, he thought this should be his. A third of the angels we read in Revelation also were so incensed they also rebelled. You know, they obediently followed and served God. And suddenly God creates this wonderful earth and everything that we see in it. And the universe, all the stars. And Satan's there thinking, well, whom else would God like to honor more than me? I'm the anointed cherub. And God says, I want to give it to man. And that just starts this absolute hatred of mankind on Satan's behalf. Satan hates mankind and wants to destroy mankind. And this surface story, this account that we have, is really just the surface of what we see underneath all the way through history. Satan's attempt to try and destroy mankind. And again, pride. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Well, 
as a result of this, Haman answered the king. He says, for the man the king delights to honour, let the royal apparel be brought. Let's bring your royal robe, king, which the king uses to wear. Oh, and your horse. That's nice. I like the horse. And the horse the king rides upon, and the, the crown as well, that's set upon his head. All of these things would be really good, king. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delights to honour, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Make sure they say it really loudly as well as they go through the streets. And then the king said to Haman, as Haman saying, Go on, king, go on, tell me. The king says, Make haste and take the apparel. Yes, he says, and the, the apparel, that's right. And take the horse, the horse, yes, that's right. As I have said, and do so even to Mordecai the Jew that sits at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that you have spoken. It's hard to imagine the look on Haman's face at this moment. We have the phrase, uh, <laughs> a ton of bricks. And this is exactly what seems to, uh, to hit Haman at this point. Everything that he would have wished not to happen suddenly happens. Well, Haman then has to lead Mordecai through the streets, proclaiming, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Sorry, Haman, what was that? Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. <laughs> they were his own words. And he now has to lead Mordecai, dressing the, the king's robe on the king's horse with the king's crown. And the people of the city were bemused. You see, Haman's edict had already gone forth to kill all the Jews. And so now they must have been scratching their heads. This is bizarre. Haman's now publicly honouring his adversary. Well, Haman returns home and we're told that he has his head covered. He's in shame. And his wife kind of offers him these words of comfort, as it were. (laughs) And she says, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. (laughs) It's like, thanks wife (laughs) for that. Yesterday you told me to go and build a gallows, and now you're telling me that there's no way out of this. Well, First Peter 5, 5-6, to we're told, Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You know what? You're better sitting at the bottom of the table than going plonking yourself at the top and then being humiliated. And God has a way of dealing with those things. Matthew twenty three twelve. Whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, but he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. You see, we're to be like Jesus. Jesus humbled himself. He gave up the majesty, the glory of heaven. He became like we are. But he'll be exalted to the highest place. In First Timothy three two to six, we're told a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler or covetous, one that rules his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And then we're told, verse 6, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. We're just told it was pride. That was Satan's problem. It was pride that caused him to rebel against God because he thought he should have something that he wasn't going to get. Again, 
Isaiah 14, that verse 13 tells us, For thou hast said in thine heart, all these things, I'll ascend to heaven, I'll exalt my throne above the stars, above the angels of God. I'll sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And you are told, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Well, later that day, Haman's gone home absolutely disgraced now after taking Mordecai through the seats. It's interesting that Mordecai just goes back to where he was before. He doesn't let this puff him up at all. He's no ego trip because of this. He just goes back to the king's gate. And we're told that Haman gets home and he's lamenting in front of his family all these things. And while they were yet talking with him came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So... Haman's thinking, okay, well, at least, you know, I get to go to the banquet. And so the king and Haman, we're told in chapter 7 as it begins, came to the banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. What is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half the kingdom. Please, Esther, tell me what you want. I'll give it to you. Well, then Esther the queen answered and said, If I found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king... Let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain and to perish. If we'd have been sold for bondmen or bondmen or bondwomen, I'd have held my tongue. If we'd just been sold to be slaves, I wouldn't have said anything, king. Although, even if that had happened, the enemy couldn't have countervailed the king's damage. Even that would have cost you more. You know, basically she's saying, you know, even if we've been sold as slaves, you, you'd have lost your wife for a start and all those that serve you in your realm and that are Jews. But she's saying, I'm bringing this petition because we're going to be killed. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that dares to presume in his heart to do so? Just to remind you, it's under this text that we have, I am. Again, the voice of the burning bush. That bush that, though it was being burnt, it wasn't consumed. Just as Israel, through its history, many times has been burnt. It's never been consumed. The Lord has never let Israel be destroyed or wiped out. We read in Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keeps thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth forevermore. Well, God, as I say, has promised to protect Israel. And this situation, Haman, no doubt, is feeling extremely uncomfortable. The king's saying, who would dare to do such a thing? And Esther says... The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. No doubt he was. Interestingly enough, this wicked Haman, in Hebrew, you know the Hebrew letters also have values. So uh, Aleph typically is one, Bet is two, and so on. So each letter has its own value. 
Well, this wicked Haman adds up to a value of 666. I don't think that's any accident. Because we see here a type of the Antichrist, one who would try and destroy the nation Israel. But just as Haman is unsuccessful, so will the Antichrist be unsuccessful as well. And any attempt made to wipe out Israel will not be successful. Well, as a result of this, the king, arising from his banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden. Now, he's thinking, how on earth did this happen? And probably he's kicking himself, because he's aware that Haman has used his ring and the authority to dupe the king into signing this decree in the first place. So the king's gone out just to give himself some fresh air and think, what am I going to do? How do I deal with this? And then we're told, Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. It's clearly from the king's countenance, he knows there's going to be a problem. But then we read, then the king returned out of the palace garden into the uh, place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed where Esther was. So Haman is pleading. And they typically would sit on couches and so on and have their food on the couches. Well, Haman has kind of fallen on this couch where Esther is, pleading for his life. And as the king walks in, he misconstrues it. It's then, says the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? In other words, would you try and rape the queen while I'm here? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. There was clearly enough guards and so on around. And this covering wouldn't have just been a, uh, it would have been a, 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 a sackcloth or something, uh, a death cloth in effect. Um, Haman probably never saw the light of day again from this moment on. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold, look out the window, king. Also the gallows, 50 cubits high. That's about 75 feet, by the way. Which Haman made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, stands in the house of Haman. The king, probably shaking his head, said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman. Of course, it's only a day before, the, the, the night before this, the king's had this, this dream, and uh, he's woken up, he can't sleep, he had this history read to him, he's now honoured Mordecai, and he realises that Haman's been plotting to kill Mordecai, the man that helped to, to save him. And then the king said, hang him there on, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. That Then was the king's wrath pacified. Just a couple of comments about this gallows. Not gallows as in typical kind of the, the, the Wild West and so on. And that's typically the picture we would get. Um, many commentators stress that gallows should actually uh, refer to as kind of a cross. Now, we do know the Persians invented crucifixion, and commentators suggest that Haman was impaled. Certainly the text uh, does seem to indicate some sort of uh, impaling or, or, or attaching to or fixing to some sort of pole. Um, but interestingly... A few chapters further on, in chapter 9, we find that Haman's sons later are also hanged on the gallows. Not a gallows. It seems to imply the very same gallows that Haman is put on. But interestingly, it's after they're dead. So they're not put on there to kill them. They're put on there as a demonstration. And interestingly enough... It was, as I say, a public display, but the gallows 50 cubits high, that would make about 75 feet tall. What has been proposed, and it's certainly interesting, is that it's tall enough for each one of Haman and his ten sons to be put one after another, after another, after another. So whether they were hung from one long line or impaled one after another, but this is a public display. 
interestingly, we do have the name of uh, the ten sons of Haman given to us, and every one of them, I won't go through now, it will be in the notes, but every one of them has something to do with self. Uh, interesting. So, what do we do about this problem? Esther's granted all of Haman's estates as a result of this, and again, he was hugely wealthy, and Esther then uh, tells the king that Mordecai is her cousin. Um, and so the king then promotes Mordecai and gives him the ring that previously had been given to Haman because the edict to kill the Jews was still in force. So Esther once again petitions the king. The decree, the decree, of course, cannot be reversed. These decrees of the Medes and Persians. But it could be, in effect, superseded. We could write another decree. And that's exactly what happens. In chapter 9, we see the origins of what becomes the Feast of Purim. We're told in the twelfth month, it's the month of Adar, so again our March time, thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary that the Jews had rule over them that hated them, the Jews gather themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt. So, in essence, what happens is the king says, I can't reverse the decree, but you can defend yourselves. And that's exactly what happens. And so the Jews throughout the realm on this particular day defend themselves. And then we read verse 3 of chapter 9. And all the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and the officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame went throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. It's interesting how God raises these people up. We have it, of course, with Daniel, becomes effectively the prime minister of the realm. We have Mordecai in the same kind of role. Joseph also. How the Lord puts his key people in key places. Those whose hearts are completely his. Remember the verse we looked at from Second Chronicles chapter 16? That the Lord looks to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Or they may show himself strong. Well, on the appointed day, the Jews then have victory over their enemies. There's 500 in Shushan in one day. The following day, actually, they get permission and there's another 300 slain. There's 75,000 throughout the realm. It becomes a national celebration throughout the realm. Gifts are sent and it becomes obviously a day of joy for the Jews. It becomes then the Feast of Purity as part now of the annual Jewish calendar. Well... Finally, the last chapter, a very short chapter, which is a few words. And King Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea and all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of his great, the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all his seed. You see, whilst Jerusalem is gradually getting back to normal, whilst the Jews had returned 50,000 under Ezra, and whilst they're getting ready now to, um, with the, the decree that had already been signed, in fact, they're already in the process of building the temple by the time we get to the end of this. All of these things are going on. And yet, had Haman's plot succeeded, all of the Jews would have been wiped out. This is another one of Satan's attempts to wipe out the line of Israel to stop the Messiah coming. And it just comes down to one young girl with enough faith to realize that God has placed her there for such a time as this. 
and prepared to take her own life, regardless of the consequences, and to go in before the king. Just in closing, just a few lessons that we deduce from this book. Firstly, that God is the one that rules. The most high rules in the kingdoms of men. We see it in Daniel 4.25. But clearly here, behind the scenes, the whole political landscape, God has been manipulating. Secondly, we see the silent working of God in human affairs. Sometimes people call it coincidence. I love it as it's been put. A coincidence is when God chooses to work anonymously. We also see the modesty of Vashti. And her convictions about exposing herself to the lustful eyes of men, of course, is a very needy example in our day. She knew it would cost her, no doubt, her position, but she wasn't prepared. You know, there's no amount of things in this world. We read in Matthew 16, What does it profit a man if she'll be given the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man be given in exchange for his soul? What a great example. Even though she loses her position... What a wonderful example of the the way that our heart should be, the way we present ourselves and so on. We see, uh, again, the destructive influence of strong drink. How many families have been ripped apart because of these things? How many relationships break down because of alcohol? We saw it earlier in uh, Timothy, Titus. We're told, don't be given to wine. Even this uh, oriental moral reprobate like Ahasuerus with all these parties and drinking appreciated the chaste beauty of this young Jewish virgin. You know, people may look at us and mock us and, and laugh at us because of our belief and yet when there's a problem, when there's a crisis where do they go? People want to know the truth. People want that which is clean and pure and holy. There's something so beautiful about holiness. Anti-Semitism, of course, is not a phenomenon that's unique to that century throughout history we've seen this. And Haman was no different than Hitler of his day and, of course, as a forerunner of Antichrist, as we've said. The evil influence of this kind of pride that we see, um, who would kill a man who would not bow before him. Again, that pride that, as we've seen, said already, was Satan's downfall. In a sense, the, the crazy rules that the Persians had made, that they couldn't reverse a rule even if they knew it was wrong. Wasn't it the same with our government? It's strange that, you know, let's bring that close to home though. What about you? If you make a decision, if you go down a particular path, are you humble enough to repent and say, no, what, actually, I've got it wrong. I'm not going to do that. Of course, in Haman's evil plot, we see the meaning of Psalm 76.10, where it says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, praise God. Because it's through what Haman did that God is magnified and glorified. God will take the glory at the end of the day for these things. So many times in history, so many examples we can cite of things like that. And again, the question, were we called into the kingdom for such a time as this? What is God calling you to do now? What step of faith Maybe it's just for now that God has put you in that particular position that you're in. You know, will you stay silent or speak on God's behalf? This is so true. I got this from a commentary. It just simply said, to try and fail is not sin, but faithlessness is. God always raises up a deliverer for his people when they repent and look to him. The wicked are often hung on their own gallows because of God's providence. It's interesting that even you know, going back to the Gulf War, Saddam Hussein was started firing Scud missiles at Israel without any success, of course. Notice the day that that decree, or the, the agreement was signed as Saddam goes into hiding and everything else, signed on the last day of the Feast of Purim. Interesting. 
So many of those things through history all happen on Jewish feast days. You know, we should always remember to thank God for every deliverance. The Jews celebrate this every year, remembering the deliverance. What about our deliverance, even greater still? And of course, that we will always be more than conquerors through him that loved us. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these wonderful lessons and examples. And we thank you, Father, for Esther, for her faithfulness in trusting you to go and stand before the king, Lord, taking her own life in her hands. Father, for Mordecai too, that wouldn't relent, that wouldn't bow before a man. Father, may we learn these lessons and may they be the the principles and the standards that we live our lives by for your glory and honor, we pray. Father, thank you for these things. Impress them upon our hearts, we ask, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.